we're just jumping into chapter 7, and I, I typically take 5 to 10 verses, and we kind of go through it slowly and ask questions and all that. And Well, uh, because I'm going to be gone the rest of the month, Paul Twist will be teaching here, and then um, Sundays in July comes right when I come back, and so uh, we won't be meeting during July as steadfast, so it'll be August before we come back. So in August... We'll come back and we'll start back in chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll work our way slowly through the chapter and go into it with a little more depth. But it's not an easy chapter to get a hold of, and um, I think that one of the keys to it is seeing the big picture of it early on. And so this morning, I really want to take time and go through the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 7 to try and get a handle on what's going on. And there, the, the title of this message, for better or for worse, is questions about celibacy, marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness, because that's really what the chapter is about, and there are a lot of questions about that, Uh, and so we're going to go ahead and jump right in, and I'm going to try and um, deal with verses 1 through 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is a section that speaks about celibacy. And, I, and just as a little bit of introduction to it, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7 says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. That's an introductory statement. It's, it's kind of ironic, I think, that he says, now about what you wrote me about, because we're in chapter 7. Now, although he didn't number the chapters, that was done later. But but Paul has written a lot to them already, and he's finally responding to what they had written him about. And we have to kind of piece together what their questions were based on his answers. And his answers start in chapter 7, go all the way through chapter 11. So this is really a new section, which is why I think getting a broader perspective of this, uh, the opening part of this section anyways is helpful. Um, and when we look at uh, what they wrote about, they obviously had some questions about celibacy. And it seems like Uh, there were some who were teaching that celibacy was something to be prized, that you were more spiritual if you were celibate. If you were unmarried, if you abstained from any sexual activity, you were more spiritual. And so this idea of being single, uh, which, funny enough, I mean, even the Roman Catholic Church has hints of this, right? That this idea that to be a priest or a nun, that somehow you're more devoted to the Lord or more spiritual, or it is somehow uh, better for you as a spiritual leader to not be married. And so those were some of the issues going on in Corinth. And of course, if you've been a part of this study, you know that Corinth was a debaucherous town. It was a navy town. There was a, uh, the people had a, a horrific past with idolatry. They had a temple there with a thousand temple prostitutes, and so there was a lot of immorality. We've seen a lot of that already evidenced in in what Paul's been writing to the church in Corinth. He says in verse 1 of 7, and all the way down through 7, he's going to address celibacy, and he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. The fact that he commands that, that he instructs them, shows that some of them, even married people, were saying, well, we're married, but we're Christians, so we are going to live celibate lives. So we're not going to sleep together. We're not going to have sexual relations because we're Christians. That was, somehow that was a teaching that was going on. And he begins in verse 1 saying that it's good to remain celibate if that's what you want to do. Verse 1, it's good uh, for a man not to touch a woman. But in verses 2, Uh, He says there are temptations, and verses 3 through 5, he's basically saying it's wrong to live a celibate life if you are married. And uh, he says there's one exception if you would do it for a time, if you take a break for a time. Verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6 and 7, he does talk about singleness and celibacy and the gift of singleness, that not everyone has to get married. 
I think sometimes in the church we have this idea that um, uh, those who are not married are somehow missing out on something that Christ would have to offer. And so, you know, you're single and you're in a group and it's like, oh, are you married? No. Oh, oh, that's, what a shame, you know. And they give you a pithy little statement to make you feel better about yourself, you know, like, well, when you're right with God, the right one will come or, you know, or, um, you know, <clears throat> oh, well, thank you. Um, I remember somebody told me when I was single, I got married when I was 31 and, and they said, um, um, you know, every pot has a lid. Uh, and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, I mean, uh, you know, I think what they were trying to say is awkwardly shaped as you are, there's somebody out there as awkwardly shaped as you are that matches. And so, uh, you know, uh, every pot has a lid. And so, you know, but I mean, I, I just don't get it because first of all, I've got pots in my kitchen that don't have lids. And I've got some pots that can fit more than two lids. So I think the whole thing breaks down really quick, quickly. Um, so, but I, I do think that we pity people sometimes and express to them some sort of sorrow as though, uh, you, know, they're, you know, they're not complete. But you can be complete in Christ. And that's how all of us are complete. Now, uh, there, there are some who will say, well, I don't have the gift of singleness. I desire to be married. Please pray for me. And we can do that as a body. But we shouldn't pity those because we believe in a God who's in absolute control. And if you're not married, I know the exact reason why. You're not married because it's not God's will for you to be married at this time. He is perfect. He is omniscient. He sees things from an eternal perspective. He knows what is best for you. God does not withhold blessing from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84, 11. And therefore, uh, we believe that uh, the good God has a perfect plan, and we trust him, and we continue to focus on him. And for those who do not desire to be married and are thinking, I don't know if I'll ever get married or ever want to get married, Paul says this in verse 6 and 7, but this I say by way of concession, not of a command, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself I am. However, each man has his own gift from God in this manner and another in that. So he saw himself as having the gift of singleness. Interestingly enough, it is likely that Paul had been married prior to this. Paul uh, declared himself to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, he had written the Galatians about his steadfastness in Judaism and this idea that if you were a Pharisee of Pharisees, you would have been grooming yourself to be the San, on the Sanhedrin. Um, now, we don't know this for sure. We don't know for sure that Paul was married. But if he had been on the Sanhedrin, which we know that the Sanhedrin gave approval to what he was doing to Christians when he was persecuting them. But if he had been on the Sanhedrin, a requirement to sit on the Sanhedrin would have been that you had to have been married. Single Jews did not sit on the Sanhedrin. Um, so it was a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. And so many scholars believe that Paul at one stage had been married and perhaps his wife had died, and he saw the benefit of singleness and said, I wish you were as I am. And he saw it as a gift for this stage of his life. Um, so that's what Paul has to say about celibacy. Celibacy is good. It can be tempting, and so it's also good to be married, um, it's wrong for married people to be celibate, but those who have the gift of celibacy should use that for the glory of God by devoting themselves on, with a more of a focus on service and service to the Lord. So he moves on to a different section, and I, I've entitled this Guidelines for Those Who Are Previously Married, verses 8 and 9. We've dealt with a celibate. Now we're looking at the previously married. And this is where things start to get a little confusing because in verses 8 and 9, it says this, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to, if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, the big question with chapter 7 that I think clarifies a lot of things is, who is he talking about when he says the unmarried? Because a lot of times people see that, and those are single people. But I don't believe he's talking about single people. I think he's talking about single people who had previously been married. And I'm going to try and demonstrate that, and I think it's important for us to understand that. Um, 
because things get clearer as to what he's talking about. So these are people who um, had previously been married but are now no longer married. They are divorced people. Um, it says in, uh, in interesting enough, this word unmarried is, um, is a unique word to the New Testament. It's found only four times, and all four times are in this chapter. And it's a word, it's the word for marriage, and it has uh, an alpha on the front of it, or an alpha privative, which means it's, it's a negation. It's, it's, like, it's like when we say, I'm a theist, oh, I'm an atheist. Uh, an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. A theist is somebody who believes in God. And so uh, we have the, that alpha added to the front of the word for marriage. It's translated as unmarried, but every word needs to be defined by context. This is true in every language. Uh, in English, I'll give you an example. Uh, I will spring over the spring on my way to the spring in spring. All right? I used the word spring four times there. Each time it had a different definition. I will spring, I will jump over the spring, the little metal coil, on my way to the spring to get some water in the springtime. And so in context... Words are often defined by the context more than just the actual word. And so um, when you look at this word, let's try to define the word unmarried. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows. So we can, we can deduct from verse 8 that Paul has a different category for widows and unmarried. There are those who are widows. Who are the widows? those whose spouse had previously passed away, who had died. So he's saying those who are unmarried and to those who had a spouse previously who has passed away. We find the same word in verse 11. Uh, verse 11, he says, uh, I'll start in verse 10, but to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. And there we're speaking about a woman who had previously been married and is now divorced and so she is now to remain unmarried. Verse 32, we find the word again, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he pleases the Lord. And so we have this idea of, um, it's a general term there. We can't, we can't deduce anything new from that. Uh, we see, first of all, in verse 8, that it's talking about somebody who in the unmarried that he's talking about in verse 8 are not, does not include widows. We see the unmarried that he talks about in verse 11 is speaking about somebody who had previously been married. Uh, verse 32, it's unclear. It's just a general term, perhaps, for marriage. But in verse 34, we learn something else. It says, um, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. And what we do is we see we have these different terms here. There are actually in the whole chapter, I don't want to confuse you here, but I'm gonna, there are four categories of people. There are the unmarried, there are the widows, there are the married, and there are virgins. Virgins he starts to address in verse 25. Virgins are clearly those who have never been married. And because he uses a conjunction that is a coordinating conjunction, the word and in verse 34 and he ties it, he says, the unmarried and virgins. We learn that the unmarried are not those who have never been married, like virgins. The unmarried are not people who are, are um, widows, and they're not people who are married. So, it makes sense to me that the unmarried here are previously married people who are now divorced. Any questions about that? This is not something that I would say, hey, man, you don't see this, you're, you're not going to heaven. This, this is not, we're not going to be too dogmatic on this, but we're trying to make sense of this, and we have to make certain interpretive decisions. Who are the unmarried here? Because I've had people come and say, well, this is speaking about everybody or whatever, and it makes a difference as we go on. So, um, in, for the previously married, verses 8 and 9, that is divorced people and people who are widows or widowers, okay? 
It says in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I, that is single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so essentially for those who are divorced, and there's going to be some qualifications for remarriage because in the very next section, not every divorced person is biblically permitted to be remarried. Um, but he says, uh, 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 if you are unmarried, you can get remarried. Uh, if you're a widow, you can get remarried, or you could remain single. I wish you'd remain single. I think it's better, but both are good. Okay. So we've seen the guidelines here for celibacy. We've seen the guidelines for the previous married. married. In verses 10 and 11, we have guidelines for Christians who are married to Christians, Christians who are married to Christians. Again, it seems as though the context here, the things they'd written him about, is that somebody had been teaching that in, in Corinth that to be single was better than to be married. And it was possible that even some people had gotten divorced from their Christian spouse because uh, divorce was something that uh, they thought would be the better way. I don't want to be married. I want to be single. I'll be more holy if I'm single. So for whatever reason, Paul had to clear that up. But he says in verses um, 10 and 11, but to the married, and I believe there he's speaking about married Christians who are married, who are both, both persons, in the, both people, <laughs> both the husband and the wife are believers and I'll show you why in just a moment. But to the married, I give instructions. One of the reasons why is because Paul never gave instructions to unbelievers. So, except unless it was to repent and believe. Um, to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord. When he says not I but the Lord, he's not saying, um, you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is important and something later I'm going to say is not important. The Lord has already taught on this. In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 19, the Lord has taught about divorce. The Pharisees questioned him about it, and he said that divorce was permissible in cases of infidelity. And so he's not teaching anything new here. He's bringing this up and saying the Lord's already taught on this, so I'm, I'm teaching you again. He says in verse 10, to the married, I give instructions not about the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So if you have two people who are believers and they get divorced, and uh, they both are believers, and somehow the church was permitting this, they hadn't stepped in and disciplined couples for doing what was wrong, uh, Paul says, okay, now you're divorced. You've got two options. Remain unmarried the rest of your lives or be reconciled to one another. That's what he's saying. Then he speaks to another group of married people. And these are married people. It becomes very clear from the context. He calls them the rest. And it's the rest of married people, those who are not married to or two believers. Um, but if you are married to an unbeliever, and he says, beginning in verse 12... He says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through, the, through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Well, verse 14 is like, what? What does that say? Well, we know what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that you're saved if your spouse is saved. We know that because it just goes against all of Scripture. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, and we're not saved by other people's faith. Um, the word sanctify means to set apart. Things that are sanctified are, I always talk about my, my Sunday clothes are set apart for Sunday. If I go home in the garage, my wife says, no, not with those clothes. She says it in a much nicer voice, by the way. Um, uh, lovey. Um, <laughs> Uh, don't wear your Sunday clothes into the garage. Don't, and, as, and people who are homes, that are Christian homes, are set apart by Christ. 
They're set apart by God. They have a special blessing from God. It is a privilege to be a child grown up, growing up in a church, that is ble- in, a, in a home that is blessed by God with believing parents. And you can imagine in a place like Corinth where you might be, have come to faith in Christ and your spouse is not a believer and your spouse is worshiping a pagan idol in the home that you might think, I need to divorce my spouse because... My children are going to be tainted by this, stained by this, and our home will not be blessed as a Christian home because it has a pagan God in it. And so Paul writes them and he says, uh, the home is sanctified, it's set apart because if you have one believer in the home, Christ is in that home. And many children see the benefits of growing up in a home with one parent who's a believer, if that parent is demonstrating Christ, and they can see the contrast between how Christ would respond to a situation as opposed to an unbeliever. That's the challenge when you're married to an unbeliever. But the answer is not to divorce the unbeliever to try and make it better for your children. The answer, if the person's willing to stay with you, then stay. Don't divorce them. Stay with them. That's the guidelines. Those are the guidelines for Christians married to unbelievers who will stay with them. The answer is to stay with them. And verse 14, God has a special blessing on that home. We'll go over that more clearly when we, or more in depth when we come back through this, Lord willing, August, September. Uh, Verses uh, 15 through 16, it carries on with Christians married to to, to unbelievers. Um, but in this case, he's addressing those who are married to unbelievers who want to leave them. Occasionally, you hear about someone who comes to faith in Christ, and their spouse is very disappointed. They're like, what? You, what? You're not, you don't enjoy doing the things we used to do? You've changed. You're a different person than I married. You, you, you want to go to church. You want to glorify the Lord. You don't want to party. You don't want to do this. You get upset when I do that. You're miserable to live with. I want to leave you. That's the situation And so in verse 15, Paul writes, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Just in case the husband or wife was saying, well, I I will not grant them a divorce. They They filed for divorce. I will contest it. I will not allow them to divorce me. In some cultures and sometimes in our own culture, uh, our own country here, it has been more difficult for a divorce to be granted if one party is not willing. And so in this case, he's saying, um, you know, that you, you may not, um, that if they want to leave, the peace that is supposed to be in a home and winning someone to Christ doesn't happen through force. God, God will save the person through his own means if he's going to save them. You must pray for him to do it, but he doesn't need you to say, you have to stay here so I can save you. And so he says you are not under bondage, which means you are free. You are free to let them go. And I believe it means you are free to remarry. So when we talk about a believer who is divorced and they want to get remarried, if they have been abandoned by their spouse or if their spouse has been unfaithful to them, I believe remarriage is permissible. Interestingly enough, if they want to be reconciled and remarry their former spouse, unless that person has repented and become a believer, they may not do that because you cannot marry an unbeliever. So we have these scenarios laid out. Paul has addressed celibacy. He's addressed guidelines for those previously married. He's addressed guidelines for Christians who are married both to other Christians and to unbelievers. And now in verses 17 through 24, he breaks away and he, gets, he, he, he goes into a little section here on guidelines for Christians who want to reform society because he realizes he's talking about marriage and unmarried and different people from different, and, and are, are we trying to change society with this? 
Uh, and he says in verse uh, 17, only as the Lord has assigned each one as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called? And that word called there has to do with a call to salvation. Did you come to faith? Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. So were you called while a Jew? Don't become a Gentile. You, know, you, you, know, don't, you don't need to come like the Gentiles. If you've been called like a, as a Gentile, you don't need to uh, you know, become a Jew. Um, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matter is the keeping of the commandments of God? Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called well a slave? Do not worry about it. By the way, in the first century, uh, Roman culture, approximately 50% of the population were slaves. And you could fall into slavery through numerous ways, whether it was through being a conquered nation or being born into slavery or being, uh, uh, you can sell yourself as a slave. If you owed a debt, you can commit yourself as an indentured servant for a number of years. It could be a lifetime commitment. Uh, And many slaves, though, though there were abuses of slavery and it was something that could be, go horrifically wrong, there were many slaves who were better educated and lived in better, more comfort than some free people who were very poor. And so there were some free people who looked at slavery as an advantage. Um, that wasn't the case in all the cases, but we need to be careful that we, when we look at first century slavery, we don't look at it through the lenses of brutal 17th century uh, colonial slavery, which we would condemn. And so um, when we look at, uh, where were we? Um, called as a slave, verse 21, were you called as a, while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So three times he lays down a principle here, and that is God's design for for transformation is internal. It's within the heart. He changes individuals. And the way of the cross is not to say society must change, and our job as Christians is to make society better. Social reform is not our main goal. Our main goal is transformation inwardly, and that should affect how we live in our society. And as long as you're not involved in something that goes totally antithetical or in opposition to Scripture, if you're called as a slave, if you can get out of it, he says, get out of it. But don't make that your main aim in life. If you're in that, that's an area where you can witness for Christ. God has called you in that place to live for him wholeheartedly. So that's a little bit about society and reforming society. And then finally, the last section here, verses 25 through 40, he comes back and he deals with the issue of singleness, and he gives us several reasons that are benefits of remaining single. And he starts in verse 25, and really 25 through 28, he's, he says, uh, you know, one reason to remain sing- single is because we live in troubled times. In verses 25 through 28, um, he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Um, he's He's trying to make it clear here that there's great freedom. I also think that he's playing off of what other people were saying in Corinth. This statement and the very last statement in the chapter, he says, in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. I think there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek there. I think there's a little bit of sarcasm. Uh, Paul did have the Spirit of God. 
Paul ad- wrote this book and, and addressed it at the very beginning with um, saying he's an apostle and he has apostolic authority, the words he wrote in this book are the very words of God. These should be taken as God's word. But he's making especially clear here that when it comes to singleness, that he's not commanding people to remain single, that he thinks it's better, but that's his opinion um, because there are benefits to it, but you have the freedom to get married. And so both are good is what he's trying to say there. And that's why he uses that language. Um, Verse 26, I think then that it is that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, uh, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Um, So those verses, he's saying that, uh, you know, there will be troubling times, and, you know, you have to realize that to the people that he wrote in Roman society, it was only about 10 years after he wrote that Nero came into power. Nero uh, blamed the Christians for a lot of things that they did, didn't do. History records that quite clearly. He did things to Christians um, uh, where, like he would sew them up in animal skins and throw them before beasts in the arena. Uh, he would cover them in wax and have them... Uh, be candles to light his garden at night. He was very cruel to Christians. In fact, Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the very first martyrs in that book was from Corinth. And so Paul's saying, hey, we live in troubling times. The future doesn't look bright. And, uh, you know, you realize if you get married, one advantage of staying single is that you can be more bold for the gospel and you have, to, you have less people to worry about during these trouble, troubling times um, or be concerned about. Um, verses 29 through 30, he makes another point here, basically saying it's easy to lose focus uh, on things that are, that are not eternal. Uh, all the way from, from, from verses 25 down through 40 to the end of the chapter, he's talking about benefits of remaining single. So that's the major section there. But um, 29 through 31, he says... But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. And that's where we really see what he's trying to say there, that this world is passing away. It's temporary, and so therefore... um, it's easy to lose focus in this world. And those of us, we all know this, right? We know that it's easy for us to stop thinking about things from an eternal perspective, and we're looking at a temporary perspective. And the more stress you have in your life, the more concerned you are with the temporary. And as Christians, we should live differently in this world because we live forever. We have given our lives for Christ. If you realize that you're a sinner and that you have no hope for salvation without turning from your sin, repenting of it, asking God to cleanse you from your sin and pay for it by Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross where his righteousness is taken out of his account and placed into your account and your sin is taken out of your account and according to Romans 4, placed on the cross where he pays for it in full and you are free from that sin and that judgment and now you are one of Christ's own children redeemed and will be resurrected and live for eternity, then you should live differently than people in this world who have no hope. And if you do not have hope and you're caught up in this world and you haven't seen things from an eternal perspective, then this day we beg you, we urge you to fall to your knees, go home, cry out to God, ask him to save you. Read his word, see, taste and see that he is good. So... It's easy to lose focus on things that are not eternal, things that are passing away. Um, and he talks about in verses 32 through 35 that marriage sometimes divides our attention. Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin 
is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And then verse 35, this I say for your own benefits, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Again, there he's just saying people who are married have uh, their attention divided. You know, Paul was the kind of guy who would go into a town and he would preach the gospel so clearly that people hated what he said because they understood that he was saying if they do not repent of their sin, that they are lost and they are headed for hell. And they did not like that message because the message, the good news of the gospel was bad news for those who don't repent. And so uh, the Jews especially were so furious with him that they often followed him from town to town and would rile up the other Jews and throw stones at him. And one stage... Uh, there in the Lystra Derby area, Iconium, uh, uh, stoning him to the point where they thought he was dead. Now, if the people who are trying to stone you think you're dead, you're hurt. And Paul wasn't thinking about his wife and kids. Paul didn't have to think about that. He did not have to hesitate one bit. He could be as bold as he possibly needed to be in every situation. Uh, Fourthly, um, he, he says another reason for being, and this is kind of a difficult one for us to understand, but he says another reason for remaining single is maybe your parents have made a vow saying that you should remain single. That's kind of foreign from our context, isn't it? But let's read verses 36 through 38. Um, but if any man thinks ill, sorry, if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... If she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Of course, in those days, like in our days, at the beginning of a wedding ceremony, a formal wedding ceremony, something would be clear that the bride is being given away to a husband. We say something like, who gives this bride to be married to this man? And typically the answer is her mother and I, right? So, so this, is, this, is, this is why the father walks the daughter down the aisle. It's a visual representation that she's been given from her father. And many, many marriages in Roman culture and in Jewish culture were arranged marriages, but there were times where fathers decided that it was best for his daughter not to be married, that she should remain single. And you can imagine in a church where a father's thinking about this, and somebody's teaching, hey, it's way better to be single. In fact, we should all be celibate. Nobody should get married, which I, I don't know how long that church would last. But, um, uh, you know, or they look down on those who were married spiritually somehow because they weren't like the uh, priests and the nuns, you know, or the, the hierarchy of the spiritual realm. Whatever the situation was, some fathers may have rashly made a vow saying that their daughter's not to get married. Now, Paul comes in and says, hey, you, those guys are wrong in teaching you this. You wrote me about this. I'm clearing it up. This is God's word. It's good to get married. It's good to be single. You're free to do both. And now little Susie is saying, Dad, you know, when you made that vow, you were doing it based off that other guy. And so I think that's why he writes this, is he says, hey, you're okay to break your vow. You made it really with the wrong information and the wrong uh, pretenses. And so... Um, uh, if you want to keep it, and you, you know, but if, if you look at the language he uses, if any man thinks that he has acted un- unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, oops, I, I, I made a rash decision. I didn't do what was right. She obviously wants to get married. I made a, a quick vow here. This was wrong. Um, however, on the other hand, um, it says, uh, verse 37, but he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, there's nothing really holding him back from sticking with his decision, and she's okay with it, and it seems like, you know, uh, this is also a good thing. So Paul's just trying to clear that up for people who might be in that situation. And finally, he reminds people that marriage is a lifelong commitment, verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound 
as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. And so he's reminding them that this is a lifelong deal. It's not eternal, but it's as long as you both shall live. Wow. So we've got 10 minutes left, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, I, I wanted to save some time at the end for questions because I know you have lots of questions. I do want to say that I'll be here afterwards if you have specific questions dealing with specific cases. I'd like you to try to keep your general questions general so that if the person you're asking the question about gets a recording of this, they don't say, oh, I know who asked that question, uh, and that it's really edifying. But I do know that you have uh, questions that I may have just glossed over, and you're thinking of a, a situation that may not apply or whatever. So questions? Yes. Yes. The qualifications for remarriage would be that you would have to have biblical qualifications for uh, divorce. And those qualifications, according to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, as well as Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, would be infidelity. So if there was unfaithfulness, um, then so if, if your spouse cheats on you, you are not obligated to divorce your spouse. You don't have to. You may forgive and reconcile. Uh, even if it's repeated, you're not obligated to. But you are permitted to. And it would be wrong for a Christian to say that it's wrong for you to divorce when our Lord said it's okay for you to divorce in that situation. If there has been abandonment, in which case you're married to an unbeliever and they leave you, then you also are no longer bound to that marriage. You're free to remarry. All right, those are the two. Yes? What about physical abuse? That's a good question. I personally do not find physical abuse as a warrant for divorce biblically. Um, now... Uh, physical abuse is serious, and physical abuse, first of all, uh, needs to be dealt with. In this country, we have the privilege that uh, we live in a society in which physical abuse of spouses is illegal. And so, therefore, if someone repents and of their physical abuse, they, they need to re be repentant before all offended parties. They need to go before the court. They need to go before the police station, fill a police report out for, to themselves, and the church should intervene. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why every person should be a part of a church family. This is one of the reasons why we encourage everyone in Steadfast to be a part of Steadfast and to be life on life and to have genuine relationships and to find a Bible study where you're doing life with people, where you're seeing them on a Thursday night, you're having coffee with them during the week, you're, you're texting them during the week, you see them on Sunday morning, and you have genuine friendships not just Sunday school people sitting next to people in Sunday school. Not that it's bad to go to Sunday school, but that you really get to know people. That's what we're trying to do with Steadfast. And so part the, what that looks like then is when, when someone comes, and it could be a wife who's beaten, that's a typical thing. I've counseled people where the father's been beaten by a child uh, with a bat. So, I mean, there are all kinds of scenarios that you can have where... Um, where there's physical domestic abuse. But in a situation where you have domestic abuse, um, in, in this country, I, I think we're obligated to involve the law uh, if, if a crime has been committed. And so that person would be best to involve them in themselves. Um, but you may need someone to stay with you. You, you, you may need a church family. You, you really need a church family to be with you. This, this is not something that cannot be worked through. If both people are uh, believers, if they're willing to uh, get counsel, if they're willing to work through it, it's going to take a lot of work. 
but I don't, I, I don't find it, I don't find a biblical, in fact, uh, I don't want to take up all of our time, but in 1 Peter 2, this is going to open a can of worms. Maybe I should deal with this um, uh, later, but I, I think it's okay because I'm going to Africa this week, and if you have any more questions, <laughs> speak to Paul next week. Um, so, First uh, Peter 2, which, by the way, we're going through this, you know, and tonight we're, we're looking at uh, the section, I think Tom Patton's doing one on starting in verse 13, but eventually we're going to get down to verse 18 in the next couple weeks here. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. I just want to say this, that the Word of God speaks to those who are slaves being treated unjustly, and that bearing up under sorrow, we should expect to be treated unjustly. No one deserves to be beaten. No one should be beaten. It is a crime, and the church should respond swiftly and severely, and the law should respond swiftly and severely. But I, I, I don't think that it's an automatic I can divorce him now. Right. Yeah. You're not saying they have to stay in the home. Just... I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, uh, so when it comes to separation, I think we'd have different elders who would give you different time frames. I would probably be more on a minimal time frame. I de- so, so obviously the person needs to be protected, right? But that can be done a number of ways, and it can be done... By, by someone staying in their home. could be by, you know, the, coming to our home and then, then the husband's welcome to come. But, you know, but, but I'm, I'm not for prolonged separation. I, I, I don't think that... I, I think time together is what needs to happen, not time away from each other. And that may need to be supervised and that may need to be uh, chaperoned and that may need to be, you know, really the church stepping in. And I've seen churches do all kinds of things from having people move into the rental house next door to people having, uh, you know, alarms around their neck. And if it's not pushed so, so many times and stuff like that, you know, there are all kinds of uh, ways that people try to help other couples. But we need to help as a family. That's what a church family is for. Yes. Yeah. That uh, woman or man stays in that relationship, uh, still married, and doesn't remarry, and they get divorced, even though, like. Yeah, so you're married, your spouse is guilty of domestic violence. Yeah. Let's just say that the spouse repents of it, but is prosecuted by the law, goes to prison, okay, and is going to be there for eight years. I personally don't find biblical warrant for divorce while that person is in jail. Because of uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, right? Because it's a lifelong commitment that you're making. Um, Marriage is a lifelong relationship. And the only, I only find two biblical grounds for divorce. And those two are abandonment and, 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 and sexual infidelity. And so I don't find spousal abuse in Scripture as biblical grounds for divorce. So I, I, I would say in 99.9% of the cases you're talking about, if it goes that far, the person who's committed the crime divorces the person. It, it, it's, it's abandonment. There's abandonment involved. There are other things involved. There's also infidelity involved. You know, typically tip, there are lots of things that happen. It's not always... Uh, just, oh, just this one time or whatever, okay? Yes?
Yeah, okay, so this will be our last question because I just realized we're, we're out of time. But verse 14, the question is regarding um, baptism of babies, and it says, but now you're unclean, but they are holy. All right, so there are a lot. The, first of all, the context here has nothing to do with baptism. I just taught on the whole chapter. I don't think I mentioned baptism once. And so to say that this is the, 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 the golden nugget in all of Scripture for infant baptism, I mean, if, if somebody, I, I had a student come to me one time and say, could you give me all the verses on, or they asked me about infant baptism. I said, would you like all the verses on infant baptism? And they said, yes. And I handed them a blank sheet of paper. And they looked at both sides and they said, there's nothing on here. I said, exactly. I, I haven't found one verse on, on infant baptism. Um, there are the passages in Acts that have to do with households. There are three passages, but in those, two of those passages, there are other verbs associated where the household also believes, okay? So, or, or it has actions that are capable of somebody who's, who's old enough to do it. So I think that um, the best argument for, for um, infant baptism is not from Scripture. The strongest argument I've had is from outside of Scripture, and it has to do with... Uh, rationale and regarding covenants. But I, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm not a good proponent of that. I think that this passage here, the word for holy and the word for sanctified is the same word, same root word, and I think it has this idea of being set apart. So, so, and a good question to ask somebody when it comes to infant baptism is, if I choose not to have my kids baptized as infants, what advantage spiritually does your child have that mine doesn't? I think they'll be hard-pressed to come up with an answer. And then the question is, why are you doing that? If you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to do that. I'm up here. I don't want to keep everybody here for infant baptism. All right? Let's just pray quickly. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this flyover of this passage. Help us when we get back together uh, in 1 Corinthians to really understand this better and uh, that this would be something we could use to have better relationships and help to counsel others better. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.